Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Ontario is preparing to change its approach to COVID-19 testing and tracing as the Omicron strains resources right across the province. What does that mean for the people of Ontario? Well, we'll discuss that. NHL's pulled out of the Beijing Olympics due to the spread of Omicron. We'll discuss that and other top sports stories of 2021 with the host of Toronto Today, Greg Brady. And what's the difference between a midlife millennial and a younger millennial? Well, we'll get into that. Interesting discussion. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Of course, we're going back to COVID and the Omicron and what's happening. Uh, yesterday in his uh, weekly briefing, uh, Dr. Kieran Moore said that rapid antigen testing may be prioritized if Omicron keeps increasing. says because the case counts are doubling every couple of days, we may have to limit the amount of testing that's being handed out, which is rather concerning, I guess, to an awful lot of us. He says we also may be required to do our own contact tracing. Here's the doctor. If you receive a positive COVID-19 PCR test or an antigen test, please support your local public health unit and your community by considering informing individuals you've been close contact with and asking them to isolate as well. As cases continue to rise at a rapid rate, the provincial workforce will be reaching out to those who have tested positive and asking them to notify their close contacts directly. A lot of concern about the protocol and about the policies that are in place right now and and a lot of criticism uh, that Ontario is moving too slowly and and maybe got off the the starting line a little bit too late when it comes to uh, what's going on and how we're treating this. I mean, we're told now, one of the other comments Dr. Moore said yesterday, uh, this could be the highest case case count of any time in the pandemic. In other words, the worst may yet be coming. So what should government be doing? What kind of a lead role should they be taking? Uh, Andrea Horvath is the uh, leader of the opposition, of course, in the Ontario legislature, the leader of the Ontario NDP, uh, who issued a statement yesterday that uh, talked about the protocol that they should be following. She joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Andrea, uh, welcome to the program. Good to have you with us today. My pleasure as always, Bill. Nice to talk to you. Listen, we were told, uh, yeah, this is this is an ugly uh, variant and it's, it's really going to cause a lot, an awful lot of problems. Uh, you know, you heard Dr. Moore's comments a few weeks ago now that said, you know, that we're going to have a very rough winter. But the, the reassurance that we seem to get there was, don't worry, we have more than enough vaccines. We have all kinds of testing kits, so we're going to get ahead of this. Now we're hearing that there are shortages. So people are lining up and, and not being able to get appointments for vaccines. And now we're being told that they basically, and I guess what the doctor was saying yesterday, is they're rationing uh, the testing kits. What's going on here? Well, once again, the Ford government uh, was uh, caught flat-footed. They didn't get out ahead of this. They made all the right kinds of noises, uh, kind of, I think, trying to placate the public, saying that, in fact, uh, they did have it under control, but they didn't. And they haven't for the entire, uh, you know, the entire timeline of this pandemic. And it's causing causing the, the virus to spread, as we know. It's causing people to have to walk away from their dreams in terms of small business owners. It's causing people to lose their income, their livelihood. And, you know, heading into the holiday season, it's a big blow, uh, you know, that, that, that this is once again where we've ended up. And, you know, I, I have to say my jaw dropped last week when on, I think it was Wednesday, the premier uh, made some mild adjustments to the protocols. You know, big venues had to be, uh, you know, a little bit uh, reduced in terms of their capacity. The very next day, the head of the science table dropped a bomb, which the government knew was coming because they get those briefings before the public does. And then Doug Ford had to scramble to try to, to show that, in fact, they're taking it more seriously. And they came out with a, a whack of new protocols. But all of this 
should have been done sooner. Uh, once again, just like, you know, really, just like when they walked us into the third wave, uh, the government was waiting to see whether it was really going to happen or not. And of course, all of the experts were saying, yes, it's going to happen. And let's try to blunt that wave as soon as we possibly can. But here we are, right, with, uh, you know, with not enough tests uh, available for people, not enough boosters. Yeah, you can make the announcement that the next tranche of, of uh, uh, people by age is, you know, is eligible for the booster. But if they're not going to get their shot until sometime in February, really, what's the point? Uh, the Hunger Games ensued, as we know, both with vaccines and with rapid tests. Uh, Ontarians are just feeling you know, completely blindsided by a government once again, uh, not to, not doing its job, frankly. Well, I had Dr. Peter Uni on the program the day after that first board announcement, as you know, and uh, and I asked him point blank. I said, "Given what we're heading for here, are you satisfied with the government's policy?" And he basically said, "No, we're not." Well, and 24 hours later, of course, the the Ford government doesn't about face on that. So I guess they finally read the document that the science table gave them. Maybe they should do that before they decide on policy next time. But it, it, the frustration here is, is, and Dr. Uni mentioned this, and I'm seeing a, a, a evidence of this as well, though, Andrea. This is a repeat of what happened about a year ago when the science table made these predictions and, and said, look, at this is going to get pretty messy unless you do this, this, and this. And the government basically hit the pause button, and, and they admitted later we were waiting to see if the projections were going to be as bad as they said. Are they doing that again? I think so. I think so. I mean, we all remember. I think it was the Attorney General. No, yes. it wasn't. It was the Solicitor General, right? It was Sylvia Jones who said, well, That's we right. were waiting to see if the cases were showing up in the hospital. But by then, it's too late. By then, you've already been overwhelmed by the wave. And yes, the exact same thing is happening now. And, and that's the shame of it, Bill. It doesn't seem like this government can get ahead of this virus uh, no matter what. It doesn't seem like they're prepared uh, to do you know, the, the, the heavy lifting in advance to try to prevent the worst case scenarios. Uh, by the time they get engaged, you know, it's already too late. And so, so people suffer and our healthcare system suffers and our frontline healthcare workers, as well as other uh, essential workers suffer. I mean, it's just, it's really, really incomprehensible that they, they still uh, are, are kind of on the same kind of routine, if you will, when, uh, when they should have learned. Now, this is wave four now. Get a grip, Doug Ford, get a grip. It's not about going to the cottage. It's about showing some leadership. And yeah, is it unpopular to have to take these public health measures? Of course. But there are things the government can do to invest, to protect people, to protect small business, to protect working people. Paid sick days, for example, right? Making sure we have a new uh, program of support for businesses. And we know what they need because they've told us for two years, they've told us what they need. Uh, you know, a, a, a real recruitment and retention plan for our burned out healthcare workers. Let's get rid of the low wage policy that Doug Ford has in place. Show those workers that we really do value them and don't keep their, their wages depressed uh, at a time when, when we need to show them that we respect them. Uh, oh, isn't that a little so bizarre? Much. I mean, so you much. remember the first wave, and and they did pass legislation, and they, you know they talked about increasing the salaries on a, a temporary basis for people like in grocery stores and things like that, and that's wonderful, that's great. But healthcare workers that are on the front line and continue to be on the front line really seem to be getting the short end of the stick here, and I, I can't understand that. Where are the, the government's priorities in situations like this? Uh, you've heard the stories. I've had guests on this program for the last twenty-two months now that have talked about burnout. And, yeah. and, you know, in long-term care facilities and even in primary care facilities like hospitals, they just said, I can't do this anymore. And they, they're, first of all, some of them are on sick leave for yeah. God knows how long. And some of them are just saying, that's it. I'm out of here. I can't do this anymore. 
uh, which is causing these staff shortages. I mean, when is the government going to address that? Well, exactly. I mean, it's a feeling of dread, I'm sure, that has permeated the healthcare sector writ large. I mean, from one end to the other, from home care to long-term care to hospitals and everything in between. Uh, when when this uh, fourth wave started, when the Omicron virus started to show its uh, you know show its ugly head, I'm sure the dread, the feeling of dread and and fear and worry and I mean, it's just, I can't imagine what those folks are going through, what their families are going through. It's, uh, it's, I'm sure, terrible. So we, we owe them a huge debt of gratitude. But you can't, you can't pretend to the public that you have a plan to hire more healthcare workers into a system where healthcare workers are telling you they're leaving not only because they're burnt out, but because they're disrespected by the government, because they're not getting the help. I was, you know, I was in Ottawa a couple, uh, about maybe a month and a half ago, talking to some frontline nurses there, and they were telling me, yeah, sure, three or four nurses get hired, they come in the front door, and five or six of us are walking out uh, the back door because uh, we're, we're just we're just done, we're just set up. Uh, we would stay, yes, our colleagues would stay if we felt that we had a government that was hearing us and that was respecting our work. So you can't get ahead. You can't get ahead in terms of the uh, human resources capacity in healthcare if the if the experienced folks and the you know the longer term folks, the folks that we really do need to help us through these next couple of years. Because yes, the virus is still with us, but we also have that growing mountain of delayed surgeries and procedures uh, and, uh, and tests, right? And we have to get through all of that. So if you don't have something that maintains, protects, uh, shores up the existing workforce on top of bringing new people in, doing some rapid training, getting new people in, you're going to fail. And and that, that means Ontarians are going to be left in a really, really bad place uh, when it comes to our healthcare system. Andrea, let's talk about the vaccination program, if we could. And, you know, we're, we're concerned, and I think justifiably so, about Omicron uh, because of the fact that it spread so quickly. And and we've heard those concerns from just about every one of the uh, experts that, that have been supposedly giving information to the government. So they start the vaccination program, and they've lowered the age, and they talked about the testing kits. Uh, when I talked to the head of the Pharmacy Association here in Ontario, they said, well, no, we weren't really sure they were going to do that. We kind of got caught off guard. And the same thing with the vaccination program. Essentially, you know, we've talked, you and I, especially back in the old days when we were in municipal government, uh, we were there during the downloading days of the late 1990s uh, under the Harris government. What the premier seems to be doing now is downloading the responsibility for dealing with the pandemic to the local health units and to the pharmacies. Uh, Where's the big plan here? And, And if that's going to be the case then why aren't they at the table so they're in the planning process so they can prepare for this? Because you've seen what happened in Hamilton and London right now. Uh, the health units, the local health units are overwhelmed because they don't have the, the people, nor do they have the, the vaccine to be able to give everybody a vaccine that wants one. Same thing with the pharmacies. I mean, we're, we're caught in a, in a bind here right now, and the government's just kind of say, well, that's their responsibility. No, it's not. I don't think no. so. No, it isn't. And the responsibility for pandemic planning uh, and, and response is a provincial responsibility and a national responsibility, but certainly healthcare, as you know, is provincial. And, and you're right. The downloading happened and it, didn't, it never stopped, frankly. And I talked to any of our former colleagues who are still there and or new colleagues and, uh, and others on municipal councils. And never, it's a never ending story when it comes to downloading to the order of government that has the least capacity to financially handle these kinds of costs and risks. And so, yeah, I mean, Dr. Richardson here in Hamilton said a couple of days earlier than Kieran Moore said, the medical officer of health, chief medical officer, who just said it yesterday, I think, you know, that, uh, that this contact tracing is going to have to be left up to 
uh, you know, to people who test positive, they're going to have to do that heavy lifting because there's not any uh, capacity in terms of staff to uh, to do that work. So, 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 yeah. I mean, Elizabeth Richardson was in front in front of that, and she made that announcement earlier than Kieran Moore, who did it yesterday. But the bottom line is. None of this stuff was planned for. None of this stuff was, uh, there was no preparation all the way through the pandemic. Doug Ford has wanted to save a buck. That's who he's, who he is. He wants to pinch pennies, save money, uh, and he doesn't want to, um, to invest. And as we know, before the pandemic hit, the government of Ontario was downloading more costs of public health to the municipalities. They were, uh, they were cutting uh, the, you know, the provincial support for, for public health, and they were going to go from uh, 30 odd public health units down to 14 public health units across the entire province. And now those very public health units that were, were being told they have to close their doors uh, are the ones that are the heroes of this pandemic on the front lines uh, with people in communities across the province. And, and you got to, you know, you got to give it to them. You got to give it to them. They, they've been doing their darndest. Uh, well, they've done a true partner at the at the provincial level, right? No, they've notwithstanding the idiots that uh, try to get in front of the hospital and yell up insults at them. But uh, anyway, right. I got about a minute and a half left, but I got to ask you one other thing because it's on the minds of an awful lot of parents. Uh, kids are off school right now, of course, for the Christmas break. Uh, we're still told in Ontario the policy is January third. They're supposed to be heading back to the classroom. Other jurisdictions have said we're delaying that some t- a week. Others not sure it might even be longer. We know there's going to be a spike in January. Everybody has told us that. The numbers are bad enough right now. Uh, Why can't the government simply say, here's the policy, here's when we're going back, Uh, instead of waiting till the last minute, because then parents have to plan, they have to find arrangements for their kids. Uh, They may not be able to go back to work because of this. We all saw this. Uh, This is going, again, a pattern here. We're replaying what they did last year again, waiting till the last minute to decide on policy and leaving, in this case, it'll be parents and school boards up to themselves to try to deal with the, the, the fallout from this. Why don't we just say, hey, they're going back in mid-January, plan for it now. They, they don't seem to want to make that commitment. No, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty uh, shameful, it's disrespectful, and it's out of touch. I mean, I don't know, maybe Doug Ford and his family didn't have to go to public schools. Maybe they had a nanny, live-in nanny for their kids. Who knows what they had? But the bottom line is the vast majority of parents have their kids in public schools, and those parents are still trying to make a living uh, at work. And and some of them, again, are going to be uh, probably sent home from work, and that whole kind of movie is going to replay again. But at the very, very least, give families some certainty. Help them, give give them some, some runway to be able to do some of that planning and figure out uh, what's coming. But the other thing, Bill, is, you know, it didn't have to be inevitable that our schools were the ones that closed the most. Our kids were the ones that were out of school the most in the entire continent. Uh, it didn't have to be that way. Doug Ford didn't want to spend the money. He didn't want to make the cost sizes smaller and bring on extra extra education workers, because remember, he was firing 10,000 of them before the pandemic hit. He didn't want to improve the ventilation, even though they pretended they were going to. Uh, you know, we're, we're saying, let's do those things. Let's make those classes smaller. Let's get that ventilation fixed in every single school. Let's make sure free N95 uh, masks are available for all education workers, every adult in the school, um, and, and make sure that we're just safer uh, and, and we can actually provide uh, the, the necessary classroom time and social time that our kids need. 
Well, here's hoping. Uh, and we, we, we need some commitment. We need to know that there's a game plan in place. And uh, we've been asking that for the last 24 months. And uh, like you say, I, I prefer governments that are, are proactive, not reactive. Uh, yeah. We've got to leave it there, Andrew. We're just, uh, we are out of time, actually. Uh, thanks so much for the time today. And uh, clearly, Merry the legislature is not going to be sitting again. Merry Christmas to you and yours. Yeah. And uh, here's hoping for a better 2022 for all of us. Thanks again, Andrew. Absolutely. Thanks, Bill. Andrea Horvath, of course, the uh, leader of the opposition in the Ontario legislature. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. 2021 was a fascinating year in sports. Uh, women uh, seemed to dominate an awful lot of the headlines uh, when it came to women's. Of course, the Olympics, I'm sure, had a lot to do with that. We're going to get into that in just a couple of seconds. And uh, also the recent news, uh, just about 45 minutes or so, they finally confirmed that yeah, the NHL is not going to be participating in the Olympics. Uh, they are shutting down for a few days. Uh, and on both issues, it's interesting that not all the players seem to be on side with this. Uh, Winnipeg Jets goaltender Connor Hellerwerk isn't really keen on the NHL's decision uh, to move up the start date of the league's traditional holiday pause. Uh, they're going to postpone games uh, about December 26th. And, uh, well, he's not impressed. Here's what he had to say. Feeling? I mean, I can't speak for everyone, but feeling for myself, it's a little overkill. Uh, you see leagues like the NFL... Who are, who are adapting and, I think, doing things right. Um, it sucks, but, you know, it's, it's Christmas time, so we're uh, enjoying the break and use this as a little mental reset, see family and enjoy the holidays and, you know, really you know, and enjoy what we have. I don't know if that's an apples-to-apples apples comparison to comparing the NFL with the NHL, but anyway, uh, to talk about this and, of course, the, the year in sports, uh, so pleased to welcome back to the program our good friend Greg Brady, the host of Toronto Today on our sister station, AM640 in Toronto. Uh, Greg, hope you're doing well. Thanks for jumping on today. Appreciate it. Hey, Bill, I, I wanted to leave you alone. You came on my show, uh, Toronto <laughs> Today, the morning after the Tiger Cats defeat, and I you know I wanted you to be able to uh, you know to reset and, and you know check your – your mental health balance. And I, th- I think I've done that for, I think you've had nine days. You can still see those single points sailing through the end zone. <laughs> yes, I can. <laughs> Ouch. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I was trying to put that behind me, but thanks for bringing I'm it sorry. up again. Uh, salt, salt in the wound, Greg. Uh, but <laughs> it's, like, it's, like a, it's like a Vietnam veteran hearing a helicopter. It never, yeah, pretty much. Never I know that pretty much. Uh, the, the, the post-traumatic stress. Uh, first, let's jump into the NHL stuff, first of all. We'll get to the year in sports in a couple of seconds. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the official announcement today, of course, that they're not going to be uh, in Beijing for the Olympics. Uh, Sidney Crosby apparently is disappointed about that. A bunch of other players, that, you know, because, hey, they want to represent the country. And then you've got the player. Did, Greg, do these guys not understand that we're in the middle of a pandemic here? I mean, half the teams have been sidelined now because they can't even ice a team because of the number of positive cases. Did the NHL have any choice but to do what they did? I don't think they did. Uh, you know, I'm always amazed, and, and you and I often see people uh, say, well, uh, to the surprise of no one, the NHL is pulling out. It's a huge surprise compared to where it was two weeks ago, yeah. and certainly four weeks ago. So it depends on, on your your perception and, and when you started sensing that this was just going to be, uh, you know, just a, non, a non-possibility. And I say that, you know, right now, Right now, I'd say the possibility of the Olympics being moved—it's not—it's not nothing. It's not you know big, but it's more than nothing. And it was zero percent a month ago at this time. So yeah, Omicron's changed a lot. I think the hellebuck cut's really interesting because you may have seen what I saw. Steve Eiserman saying on the weekend, who's the you know legendary Hall of Famer, Red Wings president, GM. He was the first to kind of you know throw his boots over the over the the, the barrier and say, 
all of our players are getting tested every day, and they're they're very healthy, fully vaccinated, asymptomatic athletes, and that's that may start something because the NFL has decided. I'm sure you saw too that they're they're not going to test as frequently because look, Omicron's going to be everywhere. Where you and I, your listeners, my listeners, were well aware of that. The, the big thing to watch is is any who are the people getting sick from it. Clearly, some people will, but if it's not NHL players, uh, I, I get Connor Hellebuck's perspective that there was you know th- there's a way to sort of ease off on the testing um, for fully vaccinated non-sick people. We're going to run out of tests, and nobody will also be able to work. We'll all be in isolation. So a lot of those a lot of those frameworks I think are getting reworked in society uh, and in sports as well. But but his point about you know that's different from what the NFL does. They, they, those guys play once a week. Uh, yeah. a typical hockey team plays three, sometimes four. As a matter of fact, they're probably going to play more now because they've already missed games, and there's going to be an accelerated schedule. To, there was going to be anyway to accommodate the uh, the Olympic break that they were going to have right now. Uh, and I get the frustration. We're all frustrated uh, by by COVID and the fact that it's gone on as long as it has. But, you know, what he failed to mention in his, his little clip there that we just played uh, was there's, what, nine teams right now that have had to lose uh, games, have reschedule games because of the, of the, the outbreaks they've had on the team. I mean, coaches, players, general managers, trainers, everybody's been impacted by this. Uh, is the suggestion here that, well, if you test positive, so what, go ahead and play that night anyway? No, but I think there's probably more a 24 to 48 hour window um, that, that we're going to have to move towards uh, with with fully vaccinated asymptomatic players. And I know the vaccination definition is changing, of course, from two doses to three, but that's no time soon. Like the, the, you, you're, we're going to have to wait before we've just gotten people used to vaccine mandates, I think, for theaters and whatnot. I'm taking my kids to the movies today um, or my friend and, and two of his so-called friends. Um, hopefully I don't end up paying bill. I don't I don't like that. <laughs> I don't like those odds for 13. They've got their own money. But nonetheless, yeah, I, I think that's the direction we're heading in because for healthcare workers, right, you're seeing what's happening in Quebec, the concept of having COVID-19 positive uh, healthcare workers, like they're going to need to work. Now, does someone need to play hockey in the NHL? Well, I might say no, and you might say no, not compared to healthcare and education, but they are businesses. And, and here's the tricky part. You bring up the scheduling. I think that's interesting because, yeah, a lot of games are going to have to be made up. You know and I know that the Olympics, ever since they've started doing these in, in Nagano in 98, the players that know they're not going to make the Olympics, they like that break. They like that time off. In fact, they've probably got flights booked and destinations, and they don't mind putting their, uh, their toes in the sand on a beach, either with uh, you know a girlfriend, a family, whomever. I don't know what the appetite is for those players, and that's where the stress level is going to compound. It's like, hey, guess what? You can't go to Jamaica, uh, you know, member of the Calgary Flames. We got you now in Dallas on February 9th. Like, no one's going to want that, and that's going to that's gonna kick up some heels as well. But this is the, – the undercurrent here is, that for the most part, the owners never really wanted to do this. I mean, there was always a concern no. – that Connor McDavid's going to, you know, get tear a knee or something like that during the Olympics and be lost, or Crosby, to you know, name your superstar. So they they were always, you know, kind of being dragged into this. And it was the Players Association that that pushed this, and and I'm glad they did. I I like seeing the the NHL guys in the Olympic tournament. I get that. But given the fact that you've got the pandemic going on, uh, given the fact that uh, the Chinese government's already said anybody that has positive there could be quarantined in China for anywhere from three to five weeks. 
Uh, you know, if you're the owner of the Edmonton Oilers and you find out that Connor McDavid's going to stay in China instead of coming back to, to play the next three weeks in the NHL season, you're going to get a little ticked off about that too. It just, it, the, the whole thing just seemed to be a, a mounting a bit of evidence to simply say, look, drop the whole thing, guys. It's just not worth the hassle for us. I hear you. And, and yeah, there was a lot of ambition about that plan, knowing uh, that, uh, that, you know, the quarantine was was what it was. I mean, it, to put it bluntly, it's a very convenient explanation, I'll say, not an excuse, to, to look past, you know, issues with China and human rights. And the NBA has done that and played games there recently yeah. and taken yeah. a lot of flack. A lot of their athletes, it's, it's great. Listen, it's the lamp of all lamps to put Black Lives Matter on, on your basketball court. It's the lamp of all lamps to, you know, to criticize uh, things going on on your own continent. It's another thing, as as the commissioner of the NHL and NBA would recognize, to turn away from China and risk, you know, a billion people plus being interested in your product and buying merchandise and, and TV rights and whatnot. So it's I'm, I'm eager to see the Chinese government's reaction to the NHL not being there. Now, remember, they're rather, I, I don't even know how to put it, catty about this stuff. They, you know, with with all when the diplomatic uh, boycotts happened, they were like, good, we don't want the diplomats here anyway. That's fine. Don't, don't. Like, they're the cattiest boy or girl you or I ever went to high school with. That's the government of China with their, their statements and their, and their missives. But that said, yeah, it's, uh, it, it, it was asking a lot. But yet in August, this is why I say it's a total shock compared to where it was in August, because to, to some of us, um, Omicron has been a shock. And, and for yeah. people who thought, well, we're going to get back to normal, like, I, I know people that are getting, you know, requests for Blue Jays season tickets, uh, payments. Toronto FC just sent out payments for season tickets. I'm sure your Ticats want, hey, you know, give us our money. Here's our 2022 schedule. And I'd like to think that we'll be able to go ahead with that. But we've kind of been burned before, understandably so. So it's fascinating to see where this all goes. Listen, I, I think a World Cup, a Canada Cup, something in the fall, chop, chop. Get organizing that right now because then you can kind of dictate the terms. You can play in your own arenas, at your, in your own time zones. Players don't have to worry about traveling. If we want to see, it's unbelievable. Austin Matthews has never played, and Connor McDavid in a best-on-best actual tournament. That Young Guns thing was a bit of a gimmick in 2016, and it, yeah. but but it's not. That's not the best-on-best. You would never see that in an actual World Cup. Well, like you say, resurrect the Canada Cup. Do something. If you if it's international mm-hmm. hockey, you want uh, you control the, the the game. Okay, you you can do that if you want. Uh, anyway, listen, i got to move on. I want to jump into some of the stuff that happened last year in yeah. 2021. And we were just talking about the Olympics. And, of course, I guess one of the big stories was the Tokyo Olympics. Uh, There's a lot of trepidation about that, about whether Canadian athletes should even go to that. Uh, and uh, because of what was going on with that wave of the pandemic. Uh, but you look at this in hindsight, Greg, uh, it, was, it was a pretty good deal for Canada. I mean, our athletes did very, very well. Uh, you know, we finally got gold in, in women's soccer. Uh, we're incredible in the pool. Uh, decathlon, it, it turned out to be just, a, I, I think, a showcase for a lot of the Canadian athletes. Well, and, and we needed it, and, and we needed that boost, no doubt about it. And if anything, you know, I'll, I'll call myself out. I know you and I had conversations in the spring about uh, our athletes and their lack of training, right, their lack of competition. Yeah. The Canadian women's soccer team were basically locked up behind, you know, in, in, in all throughout Canada. And Ontario, you and I talked about that in the spring, too. They basically locked us inside and, and didn't allow us outdoor sports at the amateur level. So a lot of these athletes really circumvented normal circumstances to go train. And whether it was Damian Warner, you know, running laps in a hockey arena because he couldn't get in an, a, another building, or whether it was the women's soccer team, Andre DeGrasse, they did brilliantly. And as you said, 
we kind of stared, you know, some fear and skepticism and doubt in the face and had the confidence that it was going to, it was going to be the right thing to do. And I said it this morning, it's weird you say that I can't name, uh, a, you know, a, an athlete that tested positive and, and in any country at the Olympics, I'm sure there were, but either they tested and were able to come back after a couple of days, it was the right thing to hold the games. It was the right thing to go. And it was a huge success for Canada. And especially at that level where we're worried about kids and young people dropping out of sports, especially girls, especially girls, that everything we did there and, and the women carrying the day, the first eight, nine days or so, that was important. It was wonderful. Yeah, I mean, the, the, you know, we just talked about some of the great accomplishments. Of course, you know, Maggie McNeil in the pool, a great athlete from London, Ontario. Hi, our listeners at CFPL. Uh, and, and, well, London, Ontario actually did pretty well by the Olympic team, too, with the Catholic champions. Uh, but even in professional sports, I mean, it was, for instance, uh, you know, it was a terrible year for Bianca Andrescu because she was nagging injuries off and on. And I, I don't know if she ever played any games at all or any tournaments where she was 100%. Uh, so you kind of thought, well, gee, I hope, you know, she comes back, but it's not really going to be a great year for women's tennis. Uh, and then all of a sudden, <laughs> along comes Layla yeah. Fernandez and, and wows everybody at the at the U.S. Open. I mean, that's that's got to be one of the top stories, too. A huge one. Yeah, yeah. Getting to that final and, and maybe, you know, I think what we hope for with Bianca, and there's still hope. She's still very, very young. Uh, yeah. and you and I have talked about the, the contrast between all of us elevating Jeannie Bouchard with, with a great year. I would tell you this. In 2014, Jeannie's obviously had injuries. Uh, and had issues to get back to prominence as well. And that, to be honest, the window's tight. Like you've got to, you've got to be great to very good to great in that, in those first five years to build momentum. You put a good team around you. I'm hoping that we can have that Emma Raducanu from Great Britain just won Sports Personality of the Year in uh, in England. And my God, I mean, you know, England had a remarkable run to the finals in the Euros. They had a they had a good Olympics as well. For Emma to win that award over all those other athletes says a lot about women's tennis and, and maybe we'll have that kind of Raducanu Fernandez rivalry that that you know I think the women's game needs but the women's game is deeper by a mile than it was seven years ago when Jeannie was making semifinals and made the Wimbledon final there's way more good young players and Naomi Osaka who we've talked about that's a lot of question marks there about what kind of player she's going to become she's got to get out of her own head a little bit and I mean that encouragingly not discouragingly get off the social media make this about focusing on on you know what you do and not what anyone says about you and it's i admit it's easier said than done for someone in her shoes but women's games in, in a great place and Layla's going to be a star i don't doubt it i there's going to be multiple grand slam wins for her on this tour she's got the game and the mentality uh, a couple of local let's let's talk about pro sports again we've got a couple of minutes left here uh 2021 is going to be looked at i guess as a, a year the toronto blue jays were probably the best team in major league baseball that didn't make the playoffs uh, a lot of people are characterizing these guys as, as a team that's on the cusp of greatness. I mean, they certainly have the potential there. Uh, what's 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 in store for these guys? I mean, I still think there's an argument to be made that they're they're still in the toughest division in baseball, and it's pretty tough to crack that that top couple Boston New York combination that's always up there. And of course, <laughs> let's talk about Tampa in there as well. Yeah. I mean, what, what what do you see? They've lost a couple of guys to free agency, picked up a few other guys. Is is this a team that that is going to contend for first place and make the playoffs next year? Yeah, I think I think they're going to be right where they were last year, and I think it's going to come down to the last two weeks of games. And and you and I talked about this too. I, you know, we had the, had had the Jays gotten back to play games at Rogers Center and not had the Dunedin and Buffalo experience, even even an additional two weeks of home games, they're in the playoffs. They missed by one game, and their record at home was phenomenal once they got back to Rogers Center and they got to play in front of first fifteen thousand people and then thirty thousand people. So. 
Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm constantly aware, as are you being a Red Sox fan, you get cocky in the AL East, you can't because, yeah, the, the Yankees and Red Sox will always spend the money. The Rays always seem to be developing those players. So there's a lot of teams that have sort of uninterrupted runs at the top of their division. Cleveland had one a long time in the AL Central. Detroit yeah. was by far the best team in the AL Central for like about seven years. I just don't think you can do it in the AL East. So strike while the iron's hot. And I, I, I'll tell you this, and, and mark my words, I like the Kevin Gossman signing. I wouldn't have re-signed Robbie Ray for the same money as Kevin Gossman. He's been a better pitcher the last four years. Loved what Robbie Ray did, but that that looked like lightning in a bottle to me. Kevin Gossman's going to be the better pitcher over the next three years. That was the right thing they did there. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, 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 not, I get all kinds of feedback from the Jays fans. I think Robbie Ray it was an aberration. He, is, he was a yeah. pretty good pitcher that had an outstanding year and cashed in on it. And God bless him for, you know, that, that luck was on his side. I hope he bought a lottery ticket. Well, I guess he didn't need one now after he signed that deal. <laughs> Uh, but you want some consistency, and, and I, I think they made the right move by doing that. Uh, Simeon is going to be tough. I mean, how do you replace a guy like that yeah. at second base with the power and the defense? But we'll see. Very quickly, uh, since you brought it up, <laughs> uh, the Canadian Football League, a, a very touch-and-go season. I mean, for a while there, early in the year, we weren't even sure there was going to be a 2021 season. Uh, it was a shortened schedule, uh, a lot of flack and hassle. Uh it was not a happy ending for Tiger Cat fans, certainly, mm-hmm. but the league is back. Uh, I know the Abacus server that was done a couple of weeks ago suggested that interest in the league is up. Uh, attendance, not so much of, I guess, but, but I think COVID had a lot to do with that. But this seems to be a league that's it's on the right track for a revival. And, and with the possible exception, of course, of the Argos in Toronto, Greg, and I don't know what can be done about that. But it's so essential, I think, that we have Canadian football, and it was it was a question mark for a while. And given all the adversity, I think it was it was a pretty good season for the league in general. I would say that just getting it in, uh, you know, I I don't doubt there were some nights of uh, of, of cold sweat uh, for executives, for players trying to make a living here, and it's a it's a finite time. What's the average pro football career? Four or five years, really, for every player. So the you know, the, the aberrations are the 15-year guys, and, and they're mostly quarterbacks and absolute superstars. But the, uh, you know, the grunts, if you will, get a good half decade after, after a college scholarship and then move on. So it's going to be interesting, right, because you saw what I saw, Grey Cup week, that a lot is, quote-unquote, on the table with regards to do people want to see four downs? Do we want to be a feeder league for the NFL? What, what can we do to, uh, because it's a, it has no global presence, and almost every important sports league, there, there's people in the UK that watch the MLS on a regular basis. There's nobody outside of Canada that watches the CFL. What could be done about that? I don't know. Well, keeping it uniquely Canadian, but I think you're right. Look, it, uh, the bounce back was critical, and and it was a big one. But now, so are the decisions they decide to make about who they are and who they want to appeal to. Absolutely. It's going to be a fascinating year. Uh, looking forward to it. And uh, it's always been a hoot having you on the program, Greg. I appreciate you jumping in for us today. I know how busy you are. Uh, enjoy uh, Spider-Man, I assume you're going to go see later on today. So uh, <laughs> don't, uh, is there any other choice? Uh, anyway, yeah, no, enjoy no it. Spoilers. And, uh, no, no spoilers. No spoilers. Okay. Don't tell me what happens in the end. I know you've seen it twice. <laughs> he leaps tall buildings. Uh, anyway, you'll get into that, and we'll do the review later on. Uh, Merry Christmas to you and the family, Greg, and uh, all the best. Uh, we'll talk again in the new year. Hey, great pleasure. I love I love uh, being uh, on your show, and, and a Merry Christmas to all your staff as well, who treat me amazingly. Thank you. you. They are fabulous. Thanks again. Greg Brady, host of Toronto Today on our sister station, AM640 in Toronto. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about aging. 
and, and getting old and, and what it does to us. And it's happening to all of us, of course. And we, we understand that. But it, it's amazing how our attitudes and our perceptions change uh, as we go from one generation to another. And uh, the, the focus of this was a, a piece I read uh, just a little while ago by uh, David Coletto uh, from Abacus Data that, that talks about this and the, the impact that it's having on so many different facets of our lives. And uh, I wanted to bring Oksana Kiszczuk, uh, who's a consultant with Abacus, on to t- talk a little bit about this. Uh, Oksana, first of all, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you back in the program today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Well, I was just referencing the uh, the piece that David Coletto wrote, uh, which essentially uh, it's uh, called Reflections of a, of a Midlife Millennial. I'm sure you've seen it. And I think he mm-hmm. kind of starts off bemoaning the fact that he's getting old. It happens to all of us. Uh, but he, he kind of segued from that into a lot of the research that you've been doing with Abacus over the last little while. And it has to do with generational uh, attitudes towards things. And, you know, we, we pretty much divide things up right now between what's going on, you know, the, the millennials, the Gen Xers and the, and the baby boomers who are still a factor in everything. But this is this is a, a, a generation, the, the millennials in particular, uh, that is so big and so influential right now. Uh, that we can't ignore them. I mean, they they probably decide the political bent that we take. They certainly decide the way uh, major companies will market this. And uh, they're very, from from the research that you guys have done at Abacus, they're very fine-pointed about exactly how they want to see things done or what they want to see and what they want and what they like and what they don't like, aren't they? Mm-hmm, yeah, I just want to um, first say thank you for quickly transitioning the conversation um, into a broader conversation about millennials and less about my boss getting old because I feel like it's a bit of a faux pas to continue talking about that on the radio um, for him. So thank you. Just for listen, that. if you see him, if you see him, just tell Dave, you don't look 40. Okay. And, yeah, and that'll it's just, his birthday today, actually. So yeah, he'll, especially bad to be talking about that. <laughs> that. That'll put a smile on his face and you can move on from there. Okay. That's the whole yeah. thing. You don't look a day over 39, David. So (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, yeah. But yeah, millennials are are quite a large uh, group. And and because they're so large and and kind of straddling this sort of tech space, I think one of the big sort of defining features that we really talk about for millennials is that um, kind of the big moment and big sort of aspect that defines them as a generation rather than just specific age group is their sort of um, propensity to adapt technology and and technology change. And and I think that's why... um, it's easy to sort of split sort of uh, younger and then I'm going to use my boss's word because he used it, geriatric millennials um, mm-hmm. and sort of how they've sort of been evolving through with things like social media and, and how they get their breaking news and all that kinds of things um, really sort of defines that generation. Well, it's interesting too, because for the research you've done uh, and, and David talks about this in the piece, an awful lot of the stuff that we kind of take for granted happened to that generation. I mean, they, they lived it. They, they, Mm-hmm. They were without it. They saw it being developed. Some embraced it, some not so much. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's it's become part of everyday lives. I mean, if you were to talk about things like social media, for instance, to a Gen Xer, they're going to say, yeah, sure, we, we use that all the time. That's a, it's, it's part of our livelihood. It's still something new to an awful lot of people that were millennials because we 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 know what it was like before that. We knew what it was like to, to actually yeah, have think, to, um, you know. The, the difference is, the, is real millennials. Yeah, I mean, you know, we, we remember when the yeah. phone that you had was stuck to the kitchen wall and, you know, that was the one that you used. That, you know, there was no such thing as portable phones in those days. And we take, you know, smartphones for granted these days. Millennials maybe have a better appreciation of that than any others because they were there before it was there. They were there when it was being developed. And now that it's become mainstream, uh, it's, it's interesting to see how it's, it's become part of their lives, too. 
Yeah, and I think like that is kind of the big defining thing, but I think there's also a lot of pieces about different roles and um, roles in society and roles kind of in the home. I think, for example, um, women are a lot more likely to be getting a post-secondary education than men in this generation. Men are a lot more likely to be kind of the home cook in the relationship. And then kind of going even bigger, um, millennials are kind of that first generation that is a lot more likely to have traveled to another part of the world by the time they're 30 um, and, and care a lot more about those big social issues like climate change and, and LGBTQ plus issues and all that kind of stuff. And so I think that those sort of pieces also help define the generation as well. And, and that's that's really driving the political agenda in this country, isn't it? I mean, mm-hmm. the, the stuff you just talked about were the yeah. things that we were talking about as the main issues that Canadians wanted to see addressed in the last election. Yeah, I think that's a really important point, too, and that these issues are important for millennials, but they become important for for countries when millennials kind of have the power in votes and they have the power in sort of stepping into those leadership roles in companies as well, um, that the issues that they care about are kind of coming to the forefront for all of us as well. And, and I guess, you know, we'll be the, the political party that ignores that. And uh, you, know, you, you need to listen to what's going on uh, and develop policies for, as you say, for climate and for LGBTQ issues and things of this nature. And we've seen that evolution, I guess, too, as millennials move along, haven't we, Exxon? That, that, uh, you know, even in the last uh, two or three federal elections, uh, you know, environmental issues. Yeah, that's something we kind of need to pay attention to. It's it's front and center. Mm-hmm. and it's, it's a major issue right now. Again, it goes back to, I guess, the point I was making about millennials saying they know what they like and what they don't like. Uh, And they say, let's, you know, if it's something they don't like, they say, well, we need to do something about this. They don't just pull their hands up and say, well, you know, that's just the way it is. Uh, And they're Mm -hmm. demanding, I guess, more of of their political leaders because of that. They want that change. Yeah, I think it's they, they're demanding it of their leaders, they're demanding it of the companies that they buy products from, all of those kinds of things really, really shift. And I think um, they're kind of that first generation where where they're sort of saying we need to, to take action on this. And I think also the split between older and younger millennials is, I think younger millennials are still a lot more optimistic about those kinds of issues and making change. But for older millennials, um, I think they're kind of in a unique place because not only are they kind of in that younger generation where they care about these issues, but they're also sort of adopting um, sort of middle age behaviors as well. They own a house, they have kids, they're married, all of these kinds of life stages. And so I think maybe the stakes um, are even a little bit higher. If I would imagine if you're a millennial who has kids who already cared about things like the climate and the future and things like that, when you have children um, that are going to be in those younger generations, it's, it's all the more impactful as well. And, you know, he references this in the piece, and I guess it's really just the circle of life. You know, when you're 20 years old, you don't much think about, you know, I want to pay off my mortgage, or mm-hmm. I need to get life insurance, or I need to worry yeah. about my retirement. You know, they always yeah. say, if you start off with your 18, put so much away every week. Nobody does that until yeah. you get to be about until you get to be about 40 or 45, and then all of a sudden, yeah, you know, I, I better get cracking on that. Uh, so with the, your, your priorities certainly change and things like that, because you're worried about mm-hmm. what's going to be happening in the future uh, because of the responsibilities that uh, that you undertake. And and it's mm-hmm. it's interesting too uh, about that attitude and how again that's going to drive policy, uh, and, and also drive business. I mean, let's face it: people that want to be successful talk to people like you at, at Abacus to say, "Oh, what are people thinking? What do they want right now?" Mm-hmm. You know, because you need to be uh, to be a successful company, enterprise, whatever it is, whether it's a car manufacturer or clothing manufacturer, you need yeah. to be responsive to what to those changing desires, don't you? Exactly. Yeah. And I think the preferences and, and those purchasing decisions as well, you're right. It's it's influenced a lot more by the values of this generation and, and what's impacted them. And then I think not only those societal values, but again, going back to that technology piece is that information has been at their fingertips the whole time. And so it's, it's a lot different when people are making a decision that 
um, when you go to buy something or rent a car, book a trip, you can check five different websites about it. And that's just kind of an instinct that this generation has. And so you have to kind of remember those pieces as well. How are these millennials handling social media? How, how are they handling uh, the electronic age? I was just saying it, it was really kind of born and developed under them. And it's, it's evolving. I mean, you know, two years ago, three years ago, I guess we weren't talking about TikTok. Five years ago, we weren't talking about Instagram. I mean, to any great extent anyway, that's mainstream. That's part of the life, of course, of, of the, the Gen X uh, folks that, that have just grown up with that technology. Are, are millennials mm -hmm. embracing it or do they just dabble in it? Um, I think that that's kind of one of the pieces that it really depends on if you're that younger or midlife, more geriatric millennial. I think when it comes to sort of the older um, aspects like Facebook, um, apps for news, that sort of thing, everything's kind of equal. But uh, that's when you really start to see the divide is things like uh, Instagram, TikTok, those sorts of things are really more common among younger millennials. And I think that just has to do with kind of the life stage and age these people were at when these apps sort of were existed. I mean, TikTok is a relatively new app. Um, maybe someone who's a parent and 40 years old isn't necessarily going to be trying to keep up to date on that, whereas someone who's closer to maybe 25 and and kind of has been stuck at home, has been scrolling. I know I'm part of the the younger millennial group, and I can see that that difference in our office between myself and David for sure. Uh, yeah, as you walk from one cubicle to the other, you know what are yeah. they on? What's what's on the, what's on their screen? Uh, yeah. are you, or what are the, or what's on their phone? I guess more importantly, I guess in situations like that, uh, yeah. you know, Facebook may be the way for for the older, I guess, the geriatric millennials to 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 congregate and you know and and to exchange ideas. Uh, maybe emails, but I, I, you're right. I don't see them, but the ones I know that are in that situation, you don't see them embracing TikTok uh, or, or those sorts of things. That's just something they don't, I guess they're not comfortable with because they just don't seem to want to use it or, or even explore that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that the specific social media platform kind of really depends on where you're older, younger, millennial. Um, but I think what is sort of common and important to remember about all millennials is that they're all using some form of social media for a lot of different things, for communicating, for breaking news, all that kind of stuff. And so being online is, is key. So what do you do with, the, with this data? after? Because you, you guys have done a lot of studies on this over the years uh, mm -hmm. about the, the generation and the impact that it has uh, and targeting. I mean, we... we I think pretty much of the opinion, and I'm talking to a lot of folks that are, are in business these days, they say, look at this old old idea that, you know, we can't appeal to everybody. You have to target an audience and say, this is what we're going to shoot for. This is what we want to appeal to. And, and this information, I guess, is essential in, in developing those sorts of plans, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's really important. And I think just going back to the size of the generation and kind of how old these folks are, especially for older millennials, they're now the largest voting bloc. So they really determine how that kind of direction of the country is decided. And they're kind of around the age where they're starting to get into really senior leadership roles as well. And so not to say that maybe other generations aren't as important, but this generation is kind of hitting its stride, I think, in terms of kind of where it's at in its life stage. And so really being able to, I think, focus on them is, is really important for businesses. And, and in politics as well, as we talked about mm -hmm. earlier, as, as I think you and I talked about this a few months ago, this, this generation, the millennials, are, are probably one of the, the key reasons why, you know, while Justin Trudeau got elected, you know, he's won three yeah, elections. Exactly. Uh, that's the voting block that that the, the liberals and I guess the, the prime minister have been shooting for right now because they're the ones that seem to have the most influence. They're the ones that actually seem to be motivated to say, hey, I'm not just, you know, interested in politics. I'm an active participant in politics. And they actually vote and they go to the, the meetings and they and they 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 drive policy, don't they? 
Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting to see kind of the shift. I think uh, David argues that millennials really have helped Justin Trudeau in the last three elections. And I think it's interesting to see um, just how he's utilizing that and kind of the policies they're pushing. I remember um, for a while, childcare was a really big policy and and half of midlife millennials have kids. So it's it's really targeting that generation and kind of the life stage they're at and, and then talking about the issues that matter to them. Are they optimistic about the future? Um, they are, yeah, for the most part. Um, similar to younger millennials, they're fairly optimistic about the future. Um, but they, but I think it's kind of balanced with it. They're worried about specific issues. So they're younger and they have sort of hope for the future, but also specific issues like housing, climate change, healthcare system are all sort of kind of weighing on them. And I think, especially for those older millennials um, that have encountered <laughs> costs of housing, have encountered the healthcare system with themselves, maybe their aging parents, their children, um, optimistic, but maybe cautiously optimistic, I'd say. Uh, and and as you said, engaged in in items. I, I mean, you know, we talked about, for instance, the housing crisis and the price of housing that's going on around the country. And I go, you guys have done a lot of research on that as well. Mm-hmm. And and I guess there's an argument to be made uh, that well, the the geriatric millennials may not have much of an impact on them because they've probably already got their house, paid for their house. Uh, they're not mm-hmm. active in the market, uh, but their kids are. And and we all know that because I, I, I still remember having that conversation with you a couple of months ago. Now, uh, the mm-hmm. bank of mom and dad is how a lot of younger families now are financing their their mortgages. Uh, they're going yep. back to mom and dad, so they're they, the, the even the geriatric millennials are taking an interest in that because it does have an impact on them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's we're seeing more common the younger millennials jumping into the market with their parents' money. But I think um, it was very much the case for those sixty percent of older millennials that own their home. I would would guess that a large portion of them also used Bank of Mom and Dad to help with that. And as housing prices rise and they don't have a lot of savings, we see half of this group is living paycheck to paycheck. So if they own a house and they have a mortgage and they're living paycheck to paycheck, um, these issues are still very real. And that's part of the phenomenon. I mean, for the, the, those geriatric millennials that we keep referring to, chances are, you know, when they were younger, their mom and dad didn't have the financial resources to be able to help them out. Uh, but these people, you know, this this generation is, they, they're cognizant about RSPs and things of this nature. So they, they may not have a whole lot of money, but they understand about having nest eggs and things of this nature and, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and what they can do with that. So it's, it's, it's an interesting dynamic and interesting perspective on this. Uh, mm-hmm. Again, uh, next time you run uh, past David, uh, wish him a happy birthday for all of us. Uh, <laughs> it's you. always great. To, no, we we love having you on the program, Exana, simply because of the perspective that you give us, and you 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 have your finger on the pulse of what's happening in this country right now, and uh, provide a great resource. And we love talking to you about the, the issues that you guys are doing some work on. So thanks for uh, your contributions through the course of the year. All the best of the uh, the holiday season. Have a merry Christmas, and uh, we'll talk again into 2022. I'm sure. Yeah, sounds great. Thank you for all the conversations this year as well. Also enjoy them. Okay, take care. Aksana Kischuk, a consultant at Abacus Data, talking about uh, the generational impact of marketing and politics and the impact that it has on our lifestyles too. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.